Well, good morning. My name is Rod Callajane, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And today we are in week four of a five-week series on the Old Testament book of Esther. This is a story that takes place nearly 500 years before Jesus was born. And one of the most important things to understand about the book is that it describes God working behind the scenes in the lives of his people. The author of the book skillfully makes God the hero without ever naming him in this story. Isn't it weird to think that the church would include a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God? Well, frankly, there are times in our lives when we feel God is distant, aren't there? Sometimes we may even wonder if God has left us. And this book is meant to encourage us with a reminder that God is faithful. He's always at work, even though sometimes it's behind the scenes. Now, I would like to propose to those of you who might be hearing this story for the very first time that there is a God who is so loving and kind that he has been working behind the scenes in your life since you were born. And his purpose in doing that is to bring you to a point where you are ready, maybe for the first time in your life, to discover what God is really like. And I believe that when you discover the real Jesus, you will find him irresistible. And our prayer for you is that someday soon you will come to think highly enough of God to trust him with the day-to-day operations of your life. There's a, that's our definition of faith, by the way. Faith is thinking highly enough of Jesus to trust him with our life. Faith is is thinking highly enough of Jesus to trust him with our life. And that that is a key truth to remember. When we come to that place where we commit our life to him, then we receive from God an eternal kind of life. And it also begins to change us into a different kind of human being, one that is countercultural to what we see in the world today. This morning we are coming to a pivotal moment in the story of Esther. And what we see today is that God is the God of the great reversal. And we are going to read about a series of reversals in this book of Esther, and then we will end our time today talking about Jesus' role in the greatest reversal ever pulled off. In case you haven't been with us for this series, let me give you a quick recap. Esther is a Jewish girl living in Persia, which is modern-day Iran, in about 475 B.C. She is married to the king of one of the greatest kingdoms the world has ever seen. And although Esther is Jewish, she kept her nationality under wraps, following the advice of her uncle, a man by the name of Mordecai, who raised Esther when her parents died when she was a young girl. At this point in the story, we find Haman, the second in command to King Xerxes. He has hatched a plan to rid himself once and for all of his nation's arch enemy, the Jews, by convincing the king to sign into law an edict allowing the Jews to be killed on a certain day of the year. Upon learning of this terrible plan, Mordecai challenges Esther to step it up and intervene on behalf of her people. And although she has kept her nationality a secret these past five years in the palace, 
Queen Esther decides to make a bold move and appear before King Xerxes uninvited. Now this action could have cost her her life unless the king decides to pardon her. She asks Mordecai to tell all the Jews living in the city to fast and to pray for her for three days in preparation. And then her famous words to Mordecai were these, I will approach the king and if I perish, I perish. Let's pick up the story in chapter five, verse one. On the third day of the feast of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace <clears throat> just across from the king's hall. Now let me point out that although these events take place 500 years before Jesus dies on the cross, the Bible has a stubborn way of introducing the idea of the importance of three days. Remember, Jonah was in the belly of the whale as good as dead for three days before he was brought back to life, so to speak. Esther and her people are as good as dead, but as we shall see, they are brought back to life on the third day. Jesus was in the tomb, dead, three days before he was brought back to life. If you want to read the story of Jesus into the story of Esther, you will not have to look very hard to find some similarities. But here we find Esther, who has put on her royal robes, and she is claiming her authority as queen of Persia. She stands outside the court, undoubtedly mustering all of her courage. And the king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. Look at verse 2. When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. By the way, there are many pictures from this time period that show the king sitting on his throne with his scepter in his hand, and behind him are men with swords. His bodyguards were always there to take care of any uninvited guests. Verse 3, then the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you even if it's half of the kingdom. Now this was an idiom, obviously. If you read the New Testament, Herod offers the same thing to Herodias' daughter who danced before him. Half the kingdom shall be yours. The meaning of that phrase is, I think a lot of you. So tell me what you want. Verses four through six. And Esther replied, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. The king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And while they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you even if, if it's half the kingdom. Now just two chapters ago, in chapter three, we learned that the last time Haman and Xerxes were drinking together, they were celebrating the decree to eliminate a certain group of troublemakers, as Haman put it. Haman never did reveal the nationality of the people that he wanted to murder. And Xerxes cared so little about the people in his empire, he never asked. 
So here they are drinking together again, and we see the first reversal. It is Esther planting the seeds that will lead to the salvation of her people. Verse 7, Esther replied, this is my request and deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you, and then I will explain what this is all about. Maybe it feels weird that Esther wouldn't just come out with it. Why two banquets? Well, let's remember that Xerxes had 180 days of partying in chapter 1. So two days is nothing. So it does convey to the king that Esther wants to talk about uh, something very serious. And this delay heightens the tension in the story, both for us and for Xerxes and for Haman. And it also introduces a time period of 24 hours where everything that has been done will be reversed. Verse 9 begins, Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. (laughs) And why wouldn't he be? He has the inside track with the queen and the king. He is second in command of the empire, the most trusted advisor to the king. And apparently, he thinks the queen adores him. But check this out, verse 9. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. See, Mordecai is still showing his contempt for Haman. He has nothing to lose now, so he refuses to bow before this murderous egomaniac. But the problem with prideful people, you see, is that they get their feelings hurt really easily. Prideful people are fragile people. All it takes is one person not bowing down to throw this guy into a fit. Verse 10, then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh his wife and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. And then Haman added, and that's not all. Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she has prepared for us. And she has invited me to dine with her and the king again tomorrow. Now, we've all heard the saying, pride goes before the fall. It's a variation of Proverbs 16, 18 that actually says pride goes before destruction. And Haman is the poster child for this saying. Pride leads to destruction. Verse 13, then he added, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Pride makes a person pathetic. Can we agree? Haman is a pathetic man. Verse 14. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all his friends suggested, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. And this pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole 
set up. Now I'm guessing that Haman placed the pole on top of a hill so that people passing by could see Mordecai up on that pole as a warning to anyone else who might dishonor him. And for the record, we can just say that Haman's wife seems like a real jewel, doesn't she? Just impale the guy and then go on your merry way. Let me offer you a suggestion. If your spouse suggests dealing with people who irritate you like this, you're in trouble. Just saying. You might need to call our counseling office. Now as we move into chapter 6, we're going to find that things are going to get sideways in a hurry for Haman. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. That night the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so that he could, they could read it to him. And in those records he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. And his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Now I want you to notice that this entire story is about to take a turn. It's about to swing and make a complete reversal. We are going to talk about this more next week, but I will just note here that it swings not on the bravery of Esther, not on the advice of Mordecai, or even the stupidity of Haman. The pivotal moment in the book is the night when the king can't sleep. Don't overlook these coincidences. He can't sleep the night before his second banquet. Coincidentally, he asks for the reading of the record. Coincidentally, the bravery of Mordecai is brought up. And coincidentally, it just so happens that who of all people should be walking by the king's quarters at that very moment? You got it. Look at verse 4. Who is that in the outer court, the king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole he had prepared. Uh Uh-oh, bad timing, Haman. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Now, once again, God is never mentioned here, but God is all over every page in Esther's story. And once again, I will remind you that God is all over the pages in our lives as well. And if you are watching or listening to this message today, my guess is that it might even be a coincidence that connected you to this message And you might believe that for a a few moments, but at some point, God is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, surprise, it's not a coincidence. I've been working in your life all along. The second half of uh, verse 6, because Haman is who he is and thinks only of himself, Haman thought to himself, who would the king wish to honor more than me. Verse 7. 
So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent idea, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes in my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him through the city square, shouting, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Now you would think that Mordecai was enjoying this little turn of events, and I imagine he was enjoying it, although as yet he is still a man living under a death sentence. Look at verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. You know, God often offers us a choice, either humility or humiliation. It's humiliation for Haman, and worse, the reversal has begun. It was Haman who was once paraded around the city after the edict passed, demanding people bow to him in respect. But here it's Mordecai who's being honored. And of all the people, it's Haman who must show his respect to Mordecai. Verse 13. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Now notice the eunuchs are back and they are going to have a say in this situation by the time it's all done. Let's move on to chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and on this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. And if we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain silent, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in a rage and went into the palace garden. 
Now, the king had a problem on his hand. He was, after all, the one who signed the law, the edict. He is now going to have to try to save face. Can he punish Haman for a plot that he himself approved? If he does, won't he have to admit his own role in this giant fiasco? Well, the king's dilemma will soon be resolved by Haman, who completely loses his cool after the king leaves the room. The law was such that men were not allowed to be within seven feet of the queen. And while Haman seems to have completely lost his cool, Haman stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. Look at verse 8. In despair, he fell on a couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Now my guess is that the king saw what he wanted to see when, it, when he declared that Haman was assaulting the queen. Haman has made it quite a bit easier for the king to save face. And so his fate is sealed. And then the eunuchs. Verse 9. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Quite a story, isn't it? Let's take a quick review of all the great reversals in this story so far. In chapter 4, Mordecai is wearing sackcloth and is covered in ash as a sign of distress. In chapter 6, he's wearing the king's clothing. In chapter 5, Mordecai at one point was walking around the city weeping and wailing while Haman is described as a very happy man. And by the end of chapter 6, well, it's the other way around. Haman was the one who was paraded around in demeaning uh, honor, and yet it's Mordecai who eventually is paraded about, around by Haman. In chapter 5, Haman brags about his great wealth, and in chapter 8, you can read it for yourself, all that Haman owned was given to Mordecai. In chapter 3, it says the city of Susa was bewildered by the edict against the Jews, and by chapter 8, it says the city was rejoicing. And of course, the gallows set up for Mordecai eventually becomes Haman's own instrument of death. The book of Esther is all about reversals. And all of these reversals all pale in comparison to the great reversal that has been made available to you and to me through faith in Jesus Christ. Talk about great reversals. Jesus leaves heaven and he's born into poverty in order that we might have the riches of heaven at our disposal. The Lord of all creation becomes part of the creation so that he might be able to rescue us in our time of need. The master of the universe shows himself to be the humble servant of all humanity. He who had no sin became sin for us 
put to death and by doing so ensures death's defeat. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we, may, we might become the righteousness of God. Can you just appreciate for a moment the divine reversal of our own fortune? We were destined to die because of our sin, but in a reversal, Jesus died in our place. Our sin should have brought us death, but in a reversal, Jesus' death brought us life. And as we read stories like Esther, we find ourselves wanting to identify with the heroes of the story. I, I'd, like, I'd be like Mordecai or perhaps Esther, not Haman. No one ever says, I identify with Haman. But I think that if we were to dig a little deeper into our hearts, we might find that there's a little bit of Haman in all of us. You may think, I've never plotted the destruction of an entire race of people. Well, good for you. I will agree with you. Haman was a worse human being than most of us. But here's an astounding truth. Even if we were deep down a little bit of Haman, Jesus died for us. Every one of us can turn and find our way into the kingdom of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest reversal of all time is that God loves you and me. And he made a way for us to swap with Jesus. He dies our death, and we live his life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak to us this day, O God, and humble us to hear your word. Make us still enough to notice your presence, quiet enough to hear your voice, brave enough to speak your good news, and wise enough to follow your spirit. So often we pray to you for life, to preserve life, to prolong life, to guard life, to begin life. Today, we pray something else. We pray for courage to lose our life for your sake. And we pray for the wisdom to find it. As Mordecai challenged Esther to be faithful at all costs, make us hear the voices of people around us who are oppressed, whose stories challenge our way of life. So we pray today for your people everywhere, for those who are suffering, those who are fearful, those who are faced with loss. We pray for those who are isolated or living in the shackles of addiction or abuse. And Holy Comforter, the one we know as our Redeemer, we know that you are in our midst. Help us recognize your spirit and help us to empower us to join your work in this world. Help us to be your church, changed and still being changed. Help us be your people, formed and still being formed. Help us boldly share the news of your love for such a time as this. In Jesus' name we pray.